0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: This week on Future Tense, the disappearing cookies and a global shortage of chips. And if you think I'm talking about the future of snack food, sadly, you're going to be terribly disappointed. Today's program is all about developments in marketing and manufacturing examining why there's suddenly a scarcity of microchips in the world, and whether the type of online advertising we've become used to in recent years, marketing that involves dropping cookies on your browser, well, whether that will shortly come to an end. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to the program.
0: You're with Future Tense
1: on RN, ABC Radio National, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future. Now, we'll tuck into the chips shortly, but first up, let's talk cookies. And here's an obvious question to get the ball rolling. What exactly is a cookie? Midos Nauens is an assistant professor in the School of Communication and Culture at Aarhus University in Denmark.
0: It's funny because it's actually a really strange word that we chose for this, but it basically just means it's a little file that when you visit a website, that website decides to save in your browser. And in that file, they could put all kinds of information. It was originally designed for kind of the ease of use for websites. So for people who wanted to log in, if you logged in on the website, it used to be that then if you went and visited that website again, it had no idea who you were, right? So you would have to log in again. So now they use those cookies to, for example, save your login details, but then they also started to use it for marketing purposes. So saving information about what was in your shopping basket. For example, if you're going from one page to another well, at this point, it's expanded a lot to also include all kinds of other user behavior on websites. But it's basically just a small little file that gets downloaded into your browser.
1: And they're important, not just because they speed things up, as we just heard, but also because they provide for a more targeted experience online. Cookies come in two varieties.
2: I'll let marketing executive Kip Bodner explain the difference. Cookies don't have the best reputation, but they're useful for... A whole lot of what we do online today, you know, cookies set by the website owner, the website that you're visiting, for example, are called first party cookies. Cookies set by other parties other than the website owner are called third party cookies. Third party cookies enable third party features or functionality like advertising, interactive content, website analytics. The parties that set these third-party cookies can recognize your computer, both when it visits the website in question, and also when it visits other websites. So
1: companies deploy cookies to find out more about you in order to point you in the direction of the stuff you like, or they think you like, essentially the stuff they want to sell you. Now, people concerned about online privacy aren't keen on cookies, as you could imagine. But it's no exaggeration to say that they've underpinned the way advertising has functioned on the internet. But for how much longer? Google has reaffirmed a commitment to phase out the use of third-party cookies on their hugely popular Chrome browser. And that sent elements of the marketing industry into a flap with predictions of a forthcoming cookie apocalypse.
2: Believe me, I'm not making that up. But how does Kip Bodnar read developments? I think the demise of cookies, as well as kind of the challenges COVID has brought with it over the past 18 months, means marketers fundamentally are going to have to take new approaches. Businesses are going to have to take new approaches. They're really going to have to adapt. You have to remember, Google is making these changes because they think that these changes are in the best interest of themselves and of their consumers. And if you're a business today and you're relying on this third-party data, you have to evolve and shift your strategy to be more in line with what your customers and consumers need and want. And you're going to have to rely more on first-party data that you get through those first-party cookies and more kind of contextual approaches to advertising, email marketing, content marketing, and the like. I know, I think fundamentally moving forward, the secret to delivering better advertising is going to lie in the marketer's ability to unlock the data that they do have and get deeper insights from that data and use that data to get hyper relevant in messaging. And I think they're going to have to create more creative and do more ad testing to actually move forward. And I think that's fundamentally what's going to have to happen in this age of third party cookies being banned.
1: So for marketers, this is incredibly important, but we have seen in the past, we've seen uh, Mozilla's Firefox and Apple's Safari. We've seen those browsers banning third-party cookies. So this has happened to date,
2: hasn't it? Why is this move by Google so significant? One, I mean, Google Chrome has a huge global market share. Fundamentally, Chrome has become the default browser of the web. And so any time where you have a big change in access to data Businesses, marketers, they get concerned because it causes a change of how you have to execute and how you can actually do your work. But all change is scary. And we saw a similar reaction with Safari and Firefox, like you talked about. And what happened? Marketers adapted. They changed their targeting. They changed their approach to advertising and marketing overall. And I think we're going to see a similar adoption and change happen with this Google Chrome change. Will it mean less data tracking in the end? I think it's going to mean less data tracking in some ways. As technology and platforms evolve, you're going to have more and more data. I think what you're going to see is marketers compiling the data and doing that CRM-driven marketing that I was talking about where, oh, maybe I have less data from my consumer's website behavior, but I also have data on how they interact with my email, my marketing automation, all aspects of my present online chat on my website, all of those things. And I'm going to piece that data together to get a more complete picture of what my buyers want, how I can create more value for them, the messaging that resonates. And I'm going to use that to deliver better and better marketing to them. So I think what we're fundamentally going to see is marketers getting better at data getting better at compiling data from different places to get a more holistic view of their customers.
1: Good morning, everyone. At Google, the past year has given renewed purpose to our mission, to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. Google has now set the end of 2023 as the cutoff date for third-party cookies. And they've talked about trying to help the advertising industry transition by developing several tools, one called the Privacy Sandbox and another called Flock, the Federated Learning of Cohorts.
2: Kip Bodner again. Well, it's still early days for Google's Privacy Sandbox. If, if it does proceed as plans, marketers can expect a bit of it from it. It's pitched as Google's alternative to Cookies. It, in theory, will offer marketers a more secure environment for personalization while protecting users' privacy. This is really good news for marketers who have relied on the information cookies have traditionally provided to target consumers and create a hyper-personalized experience and campaigns. Because they'll be able to tap into similar data that they've used historically without the same privacy concerns we have today that are associated with cookies and the debate that surrounds them. I think, though, regardless, when you're using customer data in any way, it's important to remember to be respectful and thoughtful of the customer and the consumer. Fundamentally, Google's data sandbox, as well as the federated learning of cohorts, are trying to replicate a lot of the value that cookies bring without as much of the data privacy concerns.
1: And do we know how far they are along in developing those tools? I mean, it's one thing to say this is what we're trying to do. Where are they actually at? What have they said? Uh, as
2: far as we know today, it's still very early. You know, obviously somebody like Google has has you know ample resources and really strong technical knowledge, so I would expect them to make fast progress. But I think clearly there's going to be a gap between this third party cookie ban and when things like the privacy sandbox and Flock really come online at a scalable enough way that all marketers can use them. And so I think a lot of marketers are going to have to focus on how to get through that gap and that dip, and then hopefully, on the other side, get access to continued, a better set of data.
1: One of the stated reasons for this impending ban on third-party cookies is privacy. There are, though, some who are suspicious about Google's overall motives, that Google would actually benefit from this position. It would actually become a, a much more dominant player in terms of its ad market position. Your
2: thoughts? My, my thoughts is that I think it's a little bit of both. You know, if you look at what's happening today, Google's trying to compete with the competition, the likes of Microsoft, Amazon, Apple. And what's Apple doing right now? Apple is laser focused on privacy. It's really hard for Google to be antithetical to that and be insensitive to the broader issue of privacy. That being said, do I think like most businesses, they're going to find a way to address that issue in a way that's advantageous for them and for their business? I do. I think that's just capitalism and business strategy at the end of the day. And so I think people are right to be skeptical, but I actually think it's coming from both sides. I think it's coming from an open marketplace and Apple and Amazon and others driving that change in behavior. But I do think Google is going to evolve in a way that it will continue to try to consolidate some of its power in the advertising space online.
1: The use of online data tracking as a tool of marketing is now so well established that its effectiveness is rarely questioned. As we've heard, the discussion tends to focus on whether or not people's privacy rights are being violated. But Nowans isn't convinced that tracking technologies are actually worth the coin.
0: Well, there's definitely a lot of money that's being spent on them. And not just cookies, right? Because we've since then, so when the cookies were invented, that was in the 90s. And tracking technology has evolved since then. So there's all kinds of other trackers that exist now that, that collect information about your behavior on the web. But it's actually not really clear how beneficial that tracking is for advertising purposes. So while, yes, there's a huge industry around it, the people who are selling the advertising based on that personal data don't really share a lot of information about how effective it is when i say the people who are doing this i'm referring to mostly google and, and facebook right they have a lot of data in their hands on oh if you show these type of ads because we've targeted them in this way then this is how many of them actually get converted into advertising but uh, it's really hard for researchers or governments to get any information on how effective it really is So while you say, yes, it's really important for these marketers, it's because of the industry that's kind of built up around it, but it's not entirely clear how much they're actually getting out of it.
1: So in one sense, it's a bit of a leap of faith to assume that these kind of trackers are actually going to increase your profits.
0: Definitely. Yeah. It's you, you kind of have to take the word of the, the people who are trying to sell it to you. And there's actually been some interesting experiments where after a lot of these data protection regulations came into effect, specifically the general data protection regulation from the EU, there's been some companies who decided or websites who decided actually let's get rid of personal targeting of ads. And instead we'll do what's called contextual advertising. So if I have a website and on that website, I'm writing about my diving adventures, then it makes sense to also show some advertising for diving equipment, for example. So here it's advertising that's based on the content of the website, rather than trying to figure out who the person is that is reading the website. And so for that approach, you don't need any of that tracking necessarily. And some of the companies that decided to do that actually showed that they didn't necessarily lose any money. Some of them also said that they got some more money, right? But definitely more studies need to be done on on that alternative model because if that is the case, then we don't even need all of this tracking that's happening right now.
1: So do you see that as a, as a possibility, as a way in which this whole area might head in the future?
0: I'd like to think so. I definitely think it should be a, an opportunity that's not talked about enough. The problem is just that because what I mentioned earlier, there's such a industry built around this data-based advertising, this tracking of individuals, that to make such a kind of shift, right, you'd basically undermine the business models of a lot of different services and organizations. I mean, personally, I don't really need advertising on the internet at all. I use ad blockers and other stuff, so I don't see them even. But if there needs to be advertising, which is generally said is that's the only way that we can fund these free websites, then perhaps contextual advertising would be one that's better in line with, I think, what most people think are the fundamental rights that they should have, right, in terms of privacy and not being tracked online.
1: So the days are numbered for the humble cookie. Well, not first-party cookies, as we've heard, and not until the end of 2023 for the third-party variety. In the meantime, expect to get a whole lot more of those annoying little pop-ups asking whether or not you'll accept someone's cookies before you can view a website. Now, in Europe, those pop-ups are regulated because of privacy concerns under the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation. And in the last couple of years, that regulation has seen the growth of so-called content management platforms. CMPs were created to manage the way in which websites ask for permission to place tracking cookies on your computer. A website, for instance, pays a CMP creator to build them a cookie consent pop-up that's compliant with the law. Well, as part of his research... Midas Nauens looked at 10,000 websites to check compliance. And here's what he found.
0: So they did really, really badly. When we looked at those websites, only about 10% of them met a basic level of legal compliance. So all of the options for tracking need to be off by default. It should be as easy to say no as it is to say yes, and consent should be explicit. So for example, continuing to use the website or clicking on the link on the website shouldn't count as consent. And just by looking at those three, 90% of the websites were non-compliant. So is
1: it possible for users to be well-informed about third-party trackers, given the design issues that you've been talking about?
0: With the current designs, no. But there are designs possible that could make it better. So one of the other issues that we also see is that often when you are faced with this pop-up, it has a list of maybe 400 different trackers. So it's not really feasible for somebody to understand what each of these trackers individually do, because even if there's enough information, you have to scroll through a lot, right, to actually say yes or no. So at that level, I don't think that's possible. But if instead those pop-ups are designed in a much more reduced and simplified way, which requires the advertising industry to also kind of reduce the amount of tracking that they want to do, then I think it it is sort of possible at an individual level. So for one website, I could say there's a pop-up design possible. That would leave me feeling informed and in control over that choice.
1: Assistant Professor Midos Nowens. and before him, Kip Bodner from the company HubSpot. And perhaps the takeaway message is that once again, any regulation is only as good as its compliance monitoring. You're listening to Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell. Moving to computer chips now. And the global pandemic severely frustrated many supply lines, including those related to computer microchips. That happened last year. But as we fast come toward the end of 2021, it's still a massive problem, according to Willie Shee, a professor of management practice at Harvard Business School. And sadly, it's likely to be a problem for
3: a long while yet. One of the reasons we see these kind of spot shortages is modern products have a lot of electronics content so for example if you look at an automobile it might have an excess of a hundred microcontrollers in it everything from the navigation system or the entertainment system to systems that control the door locks or the power windows or the engine controller right so what happens now is you know you need a lot of different electronic parts to put together an automobile, but you only need to be missing one to be unable to ship that completed product. And that's really what we're seeing. A lot of people don't realize when you manufacture semiconductors, whether it's in Taiwan or the United States or wherever, more often than not, you send the finished wafers containing these chips to a place like Malaysia or Vietnam to package these chips, right? So what we have today is a situation where you have a very complex supply chain With a lot of dependencies cross border, whether it's for chip packaging or components or the microchips themselves. And in normal times, it's a very complex dance. But then when you have disruptions from logistics and transportation or COVID outbreaks in one area or another, it kind of rolls marbles under everything. So, were
1: the underpinnings for this current shortage, this current crisis, were they there before? The pandemic hit has the pandemic simply just made the system that operates you know
3: problematic the system before the pandemic was really like a finely tuned machine where everything was in balance now in the case of microchips we've had first of all a lot of demand from the work from home products and at the same time, initially, the automakers saw a steep fall off in demand. If you remember at the beginning of 2020, first China, then Europe, and then North America saw their auto sales drop precipitously. For example, in Europe, in April of 2020, sales dropped 80%, right, which is really quite dramatic. Okay? In China, in February of 2020, sales dropped 82%. 2020. So, the automaker said, Well, I have to conserve cash. Let's stop buying all these parts. Meanwhile, you had a lot of demand for notebook computers, work from home things. So, a lot of that capacity shifted to some of these other markets. And then, when the automakers came back and said, Okay, uh, we think sales are strong, we need to order more ships, the capacity had been allocated to somebody else. So, what happened is the pandemic has really kind of shifted the balance point on a lot of things. Now, Also in semiconductors, we've seen a string of incidents. For example, there was a fire at one factory in Japan in October of 2020, in March of this year. There was another big fire at a factory, a semiconductor factory in Japan that makes a lot of microcontrollers for the automotive industry. So it's been a finely tuned system that didn't have a lot of slack capacity. But then when you have these disruptions, it's just really caused chaos in a lot of sectors.
1: And problematic here is the fact that this is a very concentrated industry, isn't it? There aren't many factories producing these semiconductors and they tend to be in just a couple of countries.
3: Well, the most advanced semiconductors of the factories are really concentrated in Taiwan and Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, TSMC, has kind of the largest market share of the most advanced chips. So if you are thinking about things like your Apple iPhone or an Android phone, or if you're thinking about notebook computers or things like that, there are only a few manufacturers who have the capacity to make the most advanced chips, TSMC, Samsung, and then Intel for its own microprocessor chips. So it is highly concentrated, both in terms of number of firms as well as
1: geographically. I know that earlier this year, the Biden administration was trying to get Congress to approve, I think it was $50 billion in funding for semiconductor manufacturing in the United States.
3: Where did that initiative go? That is still awaiting funding. Okay. So it was an act that has passed, but they haven't funded it yet. So that that is still work to be done. They have promised $52 billion for various parts of the semiconductor industry, including for a lot of subsidies, if you will, for manufacturing in the United States. There's also funding for research and development that's proposed, but that's still working its ways through the American Congress right now.
1: And even when that funding comes through, if it does come through, that's not going to improve the situation in the short term, is it?
3: Well, no, not at all, because first of all, $52 billion in the context of the semiconductor industry is not a lot of money. So for example, TSMC in Taiwan, is already slated to spend over 30 billion dollars it'll be in the mid 30s in the next year just on its own expansion so if you think about 52 billion i think of that as a reasonable down payment but it's certainly not going to do anything to resolve america's loss of competitive leadership and if you're just talking about building more factories that process is rather slow it takes about probably two years to put together a factory and equip it and bring it up to speed. So by then, I'm expecting that the current suppliers will have kind of caught up with the demand by then, right? So then some people are worried about all that new capacity coming on stream just when the supply crunch has already ended. And that, that's certainly one of the risks.
1: And just tell us about the actual manufacturing process involved with these chips, because it it takes quite a a deal of effort and quite an amount of time to actually make one, doesn't it?
3: Well, yes. If you think about the manufacturing process for the most advanced chips, you start with a silicon wafer, and it's a wafer that's a pure single crystal of silicon, right, which has to be refined and purified and polished in its own way. And then you put it through a manufacturing process and they pass through a series of tools that do successive patterning and etching and carving out these microscopic features now typically for some of the older processes you might have 300 350 steps some of the newer most advanced processes you might have 700 plus steps in sequence and each one of these steps takes some number of hours to do. So from start to finish, a raw wafer until you get one with chips on it, it could take you 60 days or more just from the raw processing time. That means the manufacturing tools for this process can be very expensive. The most expensive one is called an extreme UV or extreme ultraviolet lithography machine. They are made by ASML in the Netherlands. And they cost about 150 million euros for one machine. And then when you uh, put it in a factory, you probably want to have 20 of them. So by the time you're done, you might spend a billion dollars building the structure and the building and the clean rooms and everything. And then you can easily spend another 10 billion or more just buying the equipment to put in it.
1: So in your estimation, what needs to be done
3: to minimise disruption as this issue is being dealt with? Well, I think having more diversified supply will be important. One of the things that a lot of manufacturers didn't realise but found out during the pandemic is we have supply chains that have multiple tiers in them. You can think about levels or tiers. So for example, if you're an automaker, you might buy Components from one of your tier one suppliers, somebody like a Bosch or a Continental or somebody like that. And then they will in turn buy electronic assemblies, maybe from somebody else, or they might buy the chips from a chip manufacturer. And the chip manufacturers may design the chips, they may manufacture themselves, but they may also turn to somebody like TSMC to manufacture them. And one of the things we found is a lot of them found you know, several tiers down in their supply chain, wait a minute, we're dependent on the same factories and same capacity. So having a little more variety among those sources, maybe having a little more slack capacity will be important. I've heard a number of automakers talking about, well, we need to have a more strategic partnership with our chip suppliers. That would be a big change because traditionally, especially the U.S. automakers have been very transactional with their suppliers saying, you know, I need price. I need the delivery. You know, I don't really care about kind of a resilient supply, but their tone is changing on that, sharing more plans with their suppliers. We've seen a lot of the chip suppliers also ask some of their customers, if you want guaranteed supply, then I need you to co-invest with me in capacity. Uh, which is a nice way of saying, I want you to prepay for some of these orders. And then you're going to take them whether you need them or not. Historically, a lot of chip customers have not been very good about that. They'll order more than they need. And then when they don't need them, they say, oh, sorry, we're going to cancel order. I think those types of behaviors are probably going to get rooted out by this pandemic.
1: I've seen some estimates from various analysts that it could take up to a year or two before supply can once again catch up with demand.
3: Your feeling on that? Well, I think it's gonna vary by sector. For example, TSMC said that they had added a lot of capacity this year for microcontrollers to help the auto industry, right? So they're planning on shipping 60% more this year, but then somebody else loses out, right? So it's gonna vary by sector. Some will get healthy sooner than others. It's probably gonna take a good year before we return to a state like before the pandemic, where people were getting supplied on a regular basis. And there might be spot shortages, but nothing like what we're seeing now.
1: And so just finally, what's the the economic
3: cost of all of that or the economic impact of that delay? Well, the economic impact, especially if you look at the automakers, is very significant because for lack of a $5 chip or maybe a $1 chip, I may not be able to complete building a 40 or 50,000 US dollar vehicle. And if it's sitting in a parking lot, we have many manufacturers who are completing them except for the missing chips just so they can keep their production going. Okay, but then to go back and put chips in, that's very expensive. If you cut your production, that capacity is lost forever. So the economic cost in the auto industry is billions and billions of dollars of missed revenue this year and uh, some capacity that just they will not recover.
1: Supply chain expert Willie Shee from Harvard Business School. You've been listening to Future Tense. The producer for this show was Karan Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast.